Hello there and welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Sarah from Sarah Faruya Coaching and this is the Legends Podcast. I believe there are many, many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories and I want to tell them and share them. These legends are a collection of people who I have found during my 20 years in Tokyo and before. All of them are brilliant people. And when I became bored with reading another billionaire's biography, I thought I want to tell the stories of the people who I meet who are absolutely fascinating, but you won't see on your regular podcast interview. They have overcome obstacles, both systemic and internal, and we cover all kinds of things from creativity, grief, racism, business, disaster, loss, trolling, infertility, farming, eating disorder, eco-feminism, and more. We have elite athletes, people who live on Zen temples in remote parts of Japan, BBC newscaster to Taekwondo champion. Please enjoy these amazing stories from what they've overcome, from what they've built, from what they've created, from the way that they talk. I'm just delighted thinking about it. So please get stuck in and enjoy this next legend. Hello, 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 everybody, and welcome to this, the Legends podcast. Today, I am super excited to introduce uh, Chuck Johnson. Um, he's an amazing elite athlete over here in uh, Japan. And, you know, Chuck, I was trying to remember how we met because we everybody has stories. We have a story. Um, yeah. There are many different ways to lead a life. We've been leading ours in parallel for about 10, 15 years now, but what, how did we meet? What was the project we were working on together? You know, that's a really good question. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I don't exactly remember either. Okay. So we were, were I, I can't remember if we were working on a project or if it yeah. was kind of an event, like a, like that, that we just met at an event or something like that. Or, um, or it, it could have been, um, were you involved in business consultation at some point as well? Yeah, so I think we worked, I think we both worked for uh, the same company. I think I was part of the company, the corporate training company. Yes. We're, and yeah. you came in as a freelancer. And so you were, was it, were you there in a capacity as an entertainer or were you there in a capacity as a consultant? I was there as a, in a capacity as a consultant. Right. Okay. Okay. There okay. we go. That's it. Yeah, there we go. So it was yeah, those kind of know. bilingual, um, role-playing scenarios right yes all right yeah no I remember yeah I got it I got it okay cool because I was like I know that you're in the film industry and everything so I was like was it the entertainment project that we were on together no okay it was the business consultation so many things you've done so let's get into it I'm gonna introduce you and then we'll get straight into it all right so Chuck is the CEO of Quiet Flame Project productions and has been based in Tokyo for almost 20 years. He is a former American Taekwondo champion and celebrity bodyguard and made a name for himself as Japan's first non-Japanese stuntman. In addition to running his own production company and actors training institution through Quiet Flame, he is also the fight choreographer instructor at the International Stunt School in Seattle and has taught workshops on East Asian style flight style fight choreography for the Society of American Fight Directors and the International Order of the Sword and the Pen. Wow. 
He has appeared in over 100 TV shows, films, video games, and TV commercials internationally, and has recently launched Strong Body Japan, which teaches people how to better care for their bodies through functional fitness training. <laughs> so this is why I knew, I knew, knew, knew this was going to be an interesting interview and how fascinating. So Chuck, mm. let's start at the beginning. Why don't you tell me about your background, your ancestry and your childhood? Okay. Wow. That's a long conversation. I know. <laughs> that was like six hours right there. <laughs> wow. Where did you even start? So, okay. Um, I'm, I'm from Michigan in the States. We call ourselves Michiganders. I'm a Michigander. So uh, originally I, I was from Detroit and then when I was 10, uh, we moved out of Detroit and into a, uh, this capital city, which is Lansing, mm -hmm. which is a bit more ethnically diverse of a place. Detroit, at, at least where I lived in Detroit at the time, it was mainly just all black. And mm -hmm. then I moved into a place called, or a suburb of Detroit uh, called Okemos. So it was, it, or, sorry, Okemos was a suburb of the capital Lansing. So, sorry, I've already gotten things confusing. But anyway, I moved out of Detroit, which is basically all black. I moved into a suburb of the capital um, city, the capital city of Michigan, which is called Lansing, which is uh, much more ethnically diverse of a place. Mm -hmm. uh, and then from the time I was 10, and then I was there basically all the way through high school and early college. Uh, when I was in high school, I started Taekwondo. And then I started it at 15. At the time that I started it, I'd never done any sports. I was really like, I was one of those kids that wasn't very good at team sports. Mm. You know what I mean? And I was kind of shy mm. um, and just, you know, kind of like that. So, so anyway, I got into Taekwondo. It was the first thing I was ever good at. I went from being a C minus average student to being an A student over the course of a few years. You know, built up a lot of confidence, decided that I wanted to go to the Olympics for Taekwondo. And then uh, from there, went to Korea, started training. And from, you know, after several years training in Korea, came back to the States, won a few non-Olympic qualifying national championships, but didn't go as far as I wanted to. And then when I was in my early 20s, I had to make a choice because I thought, okay, I love Taekwondo. I want to go as far as I can with it. But at that point, I traveled abroad and I saw how much world there was. And I saw how many different things you can do. And I saw how many different kinds of people there were and, and how many different ways there were to live life and all this other thing. And then I started thinking, okay, well, do I really want to be in my thirties and then only know Taekwondo? Mm. Because if you want to become an Olympic an Olympian, that's what it takes. You can't, you can't get distracted. You can't get sidelined. You have to focus on just doing that, 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 and only that, and give yourself the only that. And I thought with all the world out there, is that what I really want? And then the answer was no. You know, so I thought, okay, well, I want to do, find a new way. And then I have all this high level martial arts experience. So what do I do? And I thought, well, okay, well, at this point, you know, I lived in Korea. And then at another point, I'd actually, I'd actually lived in China as well because I was, uh, my way of, of getting back and forth to Asia was study abroad programs. So I was just, I studied abroad in Korea so many times to go there to train that I'd taken literally every single class you can take. And then my study abroad advisor was like, you can't go back anymore because you've taken all of the classes. There's no classes left. So then I said, all right, well, what's the next closest country? And he says, well, 
you can go to Hong Kong, but you need a business degree or a business minor to go to Hong Kong. And I thought, all right, well, I'll just add a business minor to my degree then. So then I added a business minor to my degree and then went to Hong Kong on a business study abroad, which is how I started learning about business. So then while I was there, I was taking classes on like leadership and management and managerial decision-making and all these business things. Um, but really I was just there because I wanted to be able to get back to Korea. So I was teaching English at night while I was taking these classes during the day to save up money to go back to Korea. And then I went back to Korea again after that. Um, and then after all of those experiences, like I said, I came back, I won a few non-Olympic qualifying national championships, but I'd learned so many different things and seen so much world that Taekwondo by itself wasn't enough anymore. So I thought, okay, well, I lived in China, I lived in Korea and my, perspective on Asia is based on the Chinese perspective and the Korean perspective. Why don't I go to Japan and see what's happening in Japan? And I can go there. I can teach English for a little while while I figure out what to do with myself. Or, you know, if I want to go to, to um, get a, a PhD or whatever. So I thought, I'll just, I'll just make a stop in Japan for like a year to teach English. <laughs> yeah, me too. Which is what everybody <laughs> says, right? Like 20 years later, like, here I am. <laughs> yeah. But nobody ever, yeah. <laughs> it's never a year. No. Always, <laughs> you just never leave. So. What a fantastic story. Um, what a great start there. I mean, this one of the reasons I love this, this, this series is because, well, especially when I'm talking to my American uh 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 guests, is I get to understand a little bit more about American history. So you're saying like you moved from Detroit to Lansing. And I, like, I know nothing about these places really. Of course, I know yeah. about Detroit because the music and so on, but like uh, the, 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 you moved into a more diverse place and it's just really, it's so interesting. I'm like Googling, where's Michigan on a map? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Terrible, but um, it's, it, it's so fascinating. So that's the first thing to note is that I've just realized what an amazing kind of education in other people's countries I get doing these interviews. Um, then the second thing is like, uh, uh, do you have brothers and sisters? I do, I'm the youngest of six. So I'm just gonna turn your video off actually. Okay. Yeah, uh, stop video. Okay. All right, go ahead. Yeah, so yes, I'm the youngest of six. What, the youngest of six? How do you think that influenced you? I think it, was, it had a huge influence because uh -huh. basically it was one of those things where, um, how can, can I put this? Like, because there were so many of us, yeah, a lot of, a lot of my time was kind of spent just figuring things out on my own and right. just going to do my, do things on my own, mm -hmm. you know? So, whereas I, I kind of feel like, uh, you know, had I been, for example, you know, if, you know, an only child or one of only two, yeah. then my parents probably would have spent a bit more time like guiding me in this way or guiding me in that way. But because there was just six of us, they're like, Chuck's fine. We'll just let him do his thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's fine. You know, so a lot, a lot of, you know, a lot of my, my time was just spent kind of exploring things on my own and then figuring things out on my own, you know, and then just kind of hustling things on my own, you know? So I think that was, one of the reasons that it wasn't necessary going to Korea wasn't all that scary for me. Yeah. Is because I was just used to just doing things by myself at that point. 
you know, and then I think the other one is going back to the whole, you know, diversity thing. One of the interesting things about America, and I'm sure that, that the UK is the same way. I'm sure that there's, you know, most places are the same way, but, you know, you have so many different people living in the States and you have concentrations of this people here and that people there. Yeah. And, you know, when I was living in Detroit, like I said, it was just, my world was basically all black. Right. Yeah. And then when I moved into you know, the suburb that I went to, Okemos, all of a sudden, that was my first experience kind of becoming an ethnic minority, mm. quote unquote, and my first real experience with, with culture shock and with meeting people that even though we all spoke the same language, that, you know, like people just do things differently and they talk differently and they wear different kinds of clothes and, you know, they like different kinds of foods and things. So, you know, just as, even though it was within America, just as a 10 year old, I'd already had my first experience with culture shock, quote unquote. So that actually made going abroad way easier because I was already cognizant of the fact that like, okay, I'm gonna go to this place where everything is just different. Yeah, <laughs> you know, People are gonna be different, but I already knew what that was like. So it was much less scary, so. Interesting. Yeah. And what do you think the influence of that was on you then? So you went from Detroit and then you moved over to um, Okemos. How did how how do you think that influenced you in addition to that mm -hmm. kind of transitioning over? Can you remember how it felt or what you thought at the time? I don't know if uh, Sarah, you yeah, I, I, missed, I missed that last part. Can you say that again, please? Sure. Um, how do you think that, like that transition from Detroit to Okemos, um, how do you think that that influenced you? Uh, so you mentioned there that you, you know, you, people were eating different foods and wearing different clothes. And so you went from being, uh, you know, just part of the majority to part of a min minority. Can you remember how that felt at the time? It was hard. Was it hard because I because I went from being in a place where I knew everything and everything made perfect sense yeah to being in a place where like all of a sudden I didn't know everything and things didn't make sense because things were just things were just different right uh -huh. you know like like uh, especially because I went from a place where people you know didn't have a lot to moving into a place where people had a lot uh -huh. and I think it may maybe it wasn't even so much it wasn't just a combination of being around people of a different culture, but it's people of a different economic status too. Right. You know, and there's, there's a culture shock. There's that culture shock as well. So it was kind of a bit of a double whammy mm -hmm. in that respect. But the thing that I got from it, and I think it, it's something that is so important for everybody to realize in one way or another is that there's, uh, you know, there's so many different ways of seeing the world. Yeah. You know, and that there's no, you know, and in these, you know, this group of people will think this way, this group of people will think that way, this group of people will think that way. And everybody thinks that they're right, <laughs> right? Or everybody thinks that like the way that they see the world is the natural way of seeing the world. But in actuality, there is no natural way of seeing the world, quote unquote, or there is no natural way of perceiving life or, there's just this perspective versus that perspective versus that perspective. And I think, you know, realizing that it makes relating to people that are different so much easier because you're like, okay, well, this is a person that's just raised to see things very differently from me. 
but that's okay because that's just how they were raised it's not because they don't make any sense or it's not because they're dumb or whatever they were just they just see the world in a very different light than I do because of how they were raised and because of where they're from love it and and I think you touched on something really important there which is culture shock but also economic shock yeah but also like it's it's funny Chuck you've put put uh, beautifully described when people say to me something about well it's just common sense I, I always think there is no common sense because especially having moved to Japan you realize um that that you know here silence is very important but where both where we're from filling silence is very important and 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 so it's common sense to keep talking yeah. but actually it's common sense here to allow the silence to open up and to to read that too. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? It is. Completely. Yeah. And I love that you call yourself quiet flame. It, this, this, this is all starting to make perfect sense to me now. Like you said, you were very shy when you were young and um, I'll go into, I'll go into that a little bit more later, but I think, you know, do you know, you know, Lisa Lowitz, right? Yes. Yeah. The lady who runs sun and moon. So she was the last person I interviewed on the podcast and her story reminds me of yours a little bit, but in reverse. So she went from uh, the Midwest mm -hmm. to moved to California and she went to the same school as Kamala Harris. Wow. So she kind of went from like, uh, yeah. So, so Midwest then down to Key West and then uh, across to California where she was in a mostly black school there, she said. Um, but, what you're talking about here, I think, with the culture shock and the economic shock and the kind of the different ways that people think was she met somebody, her her boyfriend's mum, who had a PhD and she was like a, a, a concert pianist or something along those lines. I can't remember what it was. And she had a different perspective again. Yeah. So she kind of said to her, oh, you could go to college or whatever. And you're just reminding me of this kind of when you're exposed to different kinds of things, you understand the breadth of common sense. Does yeah. that make sense? Like the breadth, yeah. Like the breadth that what happens at the edges, what happens at, uh, along the bell curve, what happens like it's your, the way that we look at the world is actually there's much more at the edges. I was raised as a Roman Catholic. So my common sense told me all these you know cross sign of the cross and you know and, and all yeah. these different kind of rituals and then my friends who weren't catholic have no idea what they were doing when they entered my church but to me that was just part and parcel like it's literally embedded in my muscle yeah. memory so it's just it, it, you're just giving so much texture and so much depth to this for me chuck yeah 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 i, I think it's and one of the interesting things that i've noticed about japan as well because in Japan, it's, it's quite homogenous here, right? But even within Japan, one of the things that, in, that I've noticed is that like, for example, if you, you ask a, a, a Japanese person, like, um, is this how you say this, you know, for example, or do you use this phrase? Mm -hmm. And then people will respond, you know, no, 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 no Japanese people use this phrase. But then you'll talk to somebody else and they'll be like, oh yeah, all Japanese people use that phrase. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think even within Japan, which is really like culturally homogenous, yeah. there's still this like wide diversity of thought. Yeah. But the difference is, is every everyone has this idea that kind of, because we're all homogenous, we all think the same. But even here, there's, there's so much like difference of thought, you know what I mean? And yeah. different 
ways of, of expressing yourself and everything else. So I think it's just, you know, diversity is just, it's just a part of the human condition. And really it's the thing that makes us stronger more than anything. You know, I think diversity is just everything. So. I love it. Diverse, diversity is part of the human condition. That might be your tagline. Let's see yeah. <laughs> the human condition. Um, that's so interesting. And of course you and I have been here for a long time and we're really embedded in life here as well. So we, we understand that there's no one monolith of Japan at all. No, no, there, there's all. many layers to it. Yeah. So um, something that I find so incredibly interesting and quite moving here is that when you were 15, you were introduced. So you were a shy, a shy guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and at 15, you were introduced to Taekwondo. And you went from being a C minus student to an A student. This is mind boggling to me. I mean, I've got goosebumps all over my body. Um, my listeners will know this is FBGs, full body goosebumps, as I say this, because I don't, uh, well, I'll hand it over to you here. What do you think was going on there? I think there was a lot of things. So yeah. one, and the biggest one was, was confidence that I can do things. Right. You know, oh. because before I'd never particularly been, I'd never been good at anything before, right? Yeah. And then through doing Taekwondo, like it's, I, uh, I, I did it, I liked it. So I just did it all the time. Yeah. And then because I did it all the time, I got good at it. And then, you know, I mean, I, I, uh, I became a Michigan state champion six days after I got my black belt. Wow. After only two and a half years, you yeah. know, and I beat people that had been, you know, black belts for 10 years or longer, you know, and then what I came to realize that like, okay, in actuality, so much of people's ability to do anything is just, it's in their confidence in whether that they can do it or not. Oh, whether they, they bingo. Can, you know, and people, they always think I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. But really it's just putting in work. You know, and there's this thing where like in the beginning, you don't, you just don't know how, cause it's new and it's different. It's weird. And then you just put in the, you just put in time and put in time and put in time and put in time. And then the more time you put in, the more it makes sense. And then eventually all of that gets internalized. And then that thing that was so foreign, you didn't even have to think about it anymore. It's just, it's just a part of who you are. And it's just a natural expression of yourself, but it's a matter of putting in that time. But the thing is, you have, and if you don't love it, then putting that time is too hard. You have to be doing it because you love it. Uh-huh. So there's something about loving it there as well. And it yeah. builds confidence. This is so, I'm just trying to kind of, pro my brain's now going doo -doo -boo 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 -boo, like an old style computer. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, um, I'm having a little Jetsons moment um, is um, yeah, the confidence. And then that confidence transferred over into your study. Can you, how do you think that happens? So you love the Taekwondo. You, you mentioned here about like you build the confidence because you have to work at it. At first you don't know what you're doing. Maybe a lot of people stop there perhaps, but then you have to become more skilled. So being yeah. unskilled is quite shameful. Sometimes it feels really embarrassing. So sometimes you just don't bother even building the skill because it takes so much humility maybe. 
Um, I, I don't know. I, certainly, I think this is part of martial arts, but you can yeah. tell me more about that. But how did that how did that transfer over into your study for C minus to A? That's rad. That's radical. Part of it was just um, it's like before I wasn't necessarily studying that much because yeah. I just didn't think I'm all that good at it anyway. Yeah. But then once I started Taekwondo, I was like, OK, well, I've got Taekwondo in the evening. So that means my a lot of, some of my time for doing homework is going to be gone. So let me just start studying before I go to Taekwondo because I won't have time to do it afterwards because I'll be tired. So then what happened is I, I would come home from school and I start studying as soon as I got home. And then it just became a regular routine of just doing it every day um, because I was going to Taekwondo every day. So then whereas before I would just procrastinate and I would put it off and it was part of it was simply the time crunch. Yeah. You know, because I had because I had less time, I put more work in early on. Wow. I became, I had less time, so it made me more time efficient. Mm -hmm. And then I think the other thing is concentration. Mm. And this is one of the things, because I teach Taekwondo now, and this is one of the things that I teach kids is how to just develop a razor focus on something, mm. you know, where you just, uh, you just, put everything else out and you just focus, 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 focus. And you just do one thing, you just do it and do it and do it and do it and do it until it becomes natural. So, and then basically I realized, okay, well, you know, maybe um, it's not that I wasn't good at things or that I didn't have a natural propensity to be good at things. I just needed to put in time. And then once I realized that, then I thought, okay, I can do whatever I want. I just got to be good at it. And being good at it is just putting in time. So then I just developed this 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 incredible, um, I guess, passion for lack of better words, of just wanting to master everything. Where it's like, okay, I mastered this. I wonder if I can master that. And I wonder this. And I wonder if I can do that. You know. And then I would just go through this process of of just choosing something and then just digging into it and then just driving into it until I would get it. And then every time I do that, I would get more and more confidence. So I would take bigger and bigger and bigger leaps. So. And that's kind of what led me to the point of all of the, the things that I'm doing now. It's just this process of doing that over and over and over again with a lot of different things. Amazing. Um, do you think there's a physical element to it as well with the concentration that like actual physical activity helps you to concentrate too? That too, because when you exercise a lot, you get, you get a punch of endorphins. Okay. You know what I mean? Or yeah. There's, there's a lot of, chemical benefits from exercising in your head right so you're way 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 less less likely to get depressed and like you 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 know even when you don't feel good about something you go and you exercise and then it resets because when you whenever you leave exercising you feel better so you're like yeah it wasn't that bad you know Love it. you just you get you get a daily reset right instead of having a problem that just like slowly bogs you down over time you, just, you reset every day, you reset every day, you reset every day. And you just, and you, it's like getting these punches of positivity every single day that just keep you in a much better mood. And mm. um, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of that came from purely the physical activity. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it's that, that marriage of like the confidence that you build from building a skill and mastering it, plus the actual kind of physiological impact that it has on you too. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Absolutely and I, amazing. And I think another really good thing about martial arts in general 
is in, in particular martial arts that have belt systems uh-huh is that basically you know i don't know if it was by design or if it's just something that naturally kind of evolved within the systems is that belt belt systems more than anything teach short-term goals and long-term goals say more you know yeah i said your belt systems more than anything what they teach you is how to engage in short-term goal setting and long-term goal setting because you're like all right my long-term goal is going to be getting my black belt my short-term goal is going to be getting my yellow belt you know in two months and then you get your yellow belt and you're like all right well cool still looking at the black belt next up is orange belt so then it's it kind of wires your mind to think okay what's my goal short-term goals and and what are the steps to get there it just wires you to think that way and i think that's another thing that just makes you very very effective at going through life through martial arts training so good chuck i mean i can i can relate this to so many different things learning a language short term you need to know how to say excuse me please thank you long term it's a, it's a different story or in in the business context that we used to work in as well it's like how can you get through this month's meet this week's meeting in english uh, if we were working with japanese business people and then what's the long-term goal is how can you really master it so that you sound masterful in those meetings rather than kind of just doing the minimum. Yeah. Or uh, for my clients, if they've got financial goals as well, it's like, okay, what can you, what can you start to pay off this week and how can you earn more? And then what's the long-term, like, do you want to buy a house? In that case, this is what we need to, mm -hmm. to line up there. It relate, like you said, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a way to do life, right? Yeah. Goal setting is just huge. Yeah. It's something that a lot of people, they just don't, you know, it's one of those things where you kind of learn it, you, you learn it from something, mm -hmm. right? A lot of people will learn it from their parents. And then um, in, in my case, I learned it from martial arts, but it's something that some people, they never get a chance to learn at all. Yeah. You know, but people that learn it, they just, they just go through and just hammer through their goals, mm. you know, setting up daily to-do lists. You're like, all right, what's the goals for today? I got to get yeah. this, 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 and this done. And then, all right, well, what's the goal for the end of the week? What's the goal for the end of the month? You know, yeah. what's the goal for the end of the year? Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. Here's mine. <laughs> there we go. My daily to-do list. Beautiful. Beautiful. Every day. Um, yeah. But you know what? You're really motivating me here to get out and be more physical, uh, you know, and just uh, and appreciate the space around me and make sure that I do something like that every day and perhaps even build a new skill. Mm. um just to humble myself to that and see if i can get some level of mastery so you know i chuck you're already adding value to old sarah's life here oh, well, thank you, thank you. <laughs> um and again i'm just brought i'm keep bringing brought back to this quiet flame it, it's mm -hmm. it's such a brilliant description of you and even if i you know even just the few times that we worked together back in the day I can really see that. I can really see that kind of, how would you describe it? It's like that that natural kind of shyness, that natural humility, that natural politeness, plus this utter, utter fierceness and um, um, uh, competence. And, and I say competence because I'm thinking about the Japanese language, which you are fluent in, correct? I wouldn't quite say fluent. I'm doing my best. Okay. <laughs> but um, I, you, you I'm, could do I'm, things okay. bilingual. Pretty good, but yeah not, yeah not yeah yet. do you speak korean as well i do but i haven't used it in years and years and years so now my my korean level 
like I can still read emails and respond to emails and things like that. Yeah. But you know, my, my mental lexicons are English and Japanese. Right. So uh, as a okay. function of that, like I tend, when I try to speak Korean, Japanese just comes out because I'm used Dang. to speaking Japanese. So, and it's just a matter of, of I, right now I don't have a reason to use it. No. And you know, with language, it's like anything, you know, you don't use it, you lose it. Correct. So I just, I try to study it when I can, when I still have time. Um, spend a lot of time listening to K-pop and then like zoning in on the lyrics just to keep, to keep my Korean ear active, quote unquote. But, yeah. uh, you know, in, in so much as I have no output for it, it's hard to hold on to right now. How about but Chinese? I do speak a little bit of Chinese too. Um, so, and I just, I started studying it several years ago, largely because I thought, okay, well, maybe this is something that'll be useful. So let me yeah. go ahead and study it. And then one of, the, one of the things that I found that's so interesting is that, you know, aside from developing confidence, you know, the, the broader spectrum of things that you study, there's just a synergistic, there's just this synergistic impact on everything that you know. And you start like noticing all these parallels and you start kind of uh, coming up with completely new ways to perceive things because your, your base of knowledge is so wide. Right. Mm. So I love that synergistic, synergistic impact on everything, you know, yeah. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So um, it's, it's, I don't quite know how to describe it because it's so abstract. Okay. But you know, I mean, like, like um, studying Taekwondo made it easy for me to also learn karate. Learning karate taught me a lot of things about Okinawa because Okinawa is is where karate is originally from, which taught me a little bit about like the history of Okinawa and the, and the evolution of the relationship between Okinawa and Japan and all that. Studying both of those, you know, and then studying karate also helped me learn Japanese, you know, and then studying that, just it just led me in another direction, you know? It's just, it's really fascinating. And I, I, I'm, I wish I had, I could have thought this through before because the question just came up, but I wish I could have thought it through before so I could find a way to better articulate it. But it just seems like, you know, when you have this really wide base of knowledge, you just look at things from a completely different perspective. I'm, so, I'm here. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. An, an, another example. Yeah. So one of the things that that's happened as well is that like I've, uh, as a function of the, of, studying Japanese martial arts and then, you know, doing, and then doing, learning how to use swords for films and things. I also started getting interest in, interested in kimono. And then I started studying kimono, right? So then I've been studying kimono for, for years on my own now, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then as a function of that, one of the, one of the, the opportunities that I've noticed, and I don't know if I ever act, act on it, but I come from this video background now, having a film production company. And then being, because I'm studying kimono, I'm around kimono people all the time. And then I've noticed that there's a lot of people who are doing kind of still photography of kimono, but there isn't anybody that's really good at videography. And then I thought, okay, well, I've got a video production company. 
here's an opportunity that I don't really see anybody acting on, you know, and then because I know how I understand kimono from the inside, I would know how to capture the imagery really well because I would know what's important in it. You know, like I, I would know what to focus on and, and because I understand kimono from the inside instead of just being a video guy who has no internal knowledge of it, right? Mm. So, you know, that's, that's, and who knows if I'll have the time or, or whatever, but I mean, and who knows, like I might've just said that and just gave that to somebody else. Look, that's a great idea, right? <laughs> but, if, but if somebody else acts on it, then that's cool too, because it's just an idea. But that's yeah. another thing I was thinking, okay, well, maybe this is another interesting thing I could do is I could spend, when I have extra time, I could work as a videographer for kimono people because you see a lot of beautiful still images, but you don't really see really good video of it, mm. you know? So. This, it's very interesting listening to you speak and you say, oh, it's very abstract. And, uh, and I can see kind of trying to get these examples together, but that one of the beautiful things I think about this side of the world and the and the um, and, and certainly Japanese culture is so so many things don't need to be said. So you're a brilliant interviewee because I, I'm sitting here going, yeah, it's abstract. I understand because we have very high context. So it's like I can kind of see all this stuff floating around and how kimono and if people do shodo, which is the um, uh, calligraphy Japanese calligraphy, all these things have the same kind of rhythm and yeah. martial arts yeah. and there's a lot of um um uh seniority like senpai kohai stuff like you have to hand yourself over to the people who are better at it than you and the masters and then you hand yourself over to them and you're always beholden to them but then you get people coming in behind you and and you have to get into this certain state of mind in order to be able to do it properly the same with kimono right it's not just putting clothes on tell me where i'm wrong yeah no, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely uh -huh. right. There, there's a lot to it. And in general, uh, as within my own personality, I love things that are complex. Ooh. I just love things that are really, really complex and filled with details and that take a long time to understand. Interesting. So um, in general, the, the more complex it is, the more intrigued I am by it. Because it just means, it just means that, that mastery becomes even more of a challenge, right? So and kimono is very, very much that way. Like it's really, they, they always have the expression like okuga fukai. What does that mean? Like the back is, it means the, the back is so deep. Meaning like when you look at like kimono, there's so many kinds of fabrics and every kind of fabric you choose has this kind of meaning. And then like, you know, for certain seasons, you wear this, this, and this. For other seasons, you wear this. When you this accessory with with this fabric, it has this kind of impact. You know, there's just there's so much meaning behind everything, and there's just even within just you know one. If you see somebody wearing a kimono, what you're looking at is at least thirty different pieces of cloth. Like, and you can imagine. I mean, if you think about like getting dressed every day, and then you're just like, all right, you have you have your shirt, you have pants or skirt, you got your shoes. And you have like, you know, if you're a lady or nowadays, even if you're not a lady, you, you got, you got tights, you've got stockings, whatever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everybody can do their thing. You yeah, know? totally. So, but you, you know, I mean, if you look at like how we dress as Westerners, quote unquote, you're looking at maybe like five different um, items of clothing that everybody can perceive. Yeah. And then you think of all the different combinations that that offers and 
all the different ways you can express yourself with those five articles of clothing, right? Mm-hmm. Now imagine that there's 30 pieces of it, mm-hmm. you know, and that some of them are just, you know, like, for example, even like, like I'm looking at the necklace that you're wearing under your collar, mm-hmm. right? And that necklace says something. Mm-hmm. about your character and about who you are and about your fashion sense or about the the kind of glasses that you're wearing right mm-hmm. like it's just it's all those little things and in kimono there's just a ton of them there's like lots and lots of them so just the the propensity for expression mm-hmm. is super high right and like the 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 ability to create art with it like wearable art is so high because there's so much you can do with it. And I, th- I think that's one of the things that's so fascinating to me about it is, is uh, one, because it's so complex, there's, there's so much freedom for expression within it. And then there's, there's so many different ways that, that uh, you know, you can create something that has visual impact, you know, and maybe I like visual impact because you know, I have a film production c- company, so I'm yeah. just, I'm a visual guy. I think visual and I think colors and, and, and movement, right? So I don't know, maybe that's part of it as well. Beautiful. Um, I, I, you've just expressed so many things about Japanese culture there. Um, and because and none of that can be harried. You can't yeah. harry uh, uh, putting a kimono on. I can remember now the very first yukata I got and it was only you know a yukata is a, a summer weight kimono for those people who um are listening who aren't from japan so you can get them in uh, uniqlo so you may have seen them in your local uniqlo excuse me <coughs> and um um but even then my japanese students who i had in the first year that i lived here came round to dress me even though it was all kind of ready-made, they didn't have to tie the bows or anything, but they came around to dress me so that it was just so, so that everything sat just so. Mm -hmm. And I love how you've related, made it really relatable for me to like notice the, the, the things about myself, like noticing that and like these little things. And it, and it relates back to even business culture in Japan. I mean, you and I both have been uh, in the, in, in the deep, in the depths of business culture in Japan and the company that we work for, I'm really grateful to them actually, because um, the Shacho there taught us how to present ourselves like from where you stand in an elevator mm-hmm. or a lift, like never go to the far right corner as you're looking out because that's for the most senior person. Mm-hmm. If you're the most junior person, then you do the pressing of the things, how to get into a taxi, how to show up like, um, for example, um, we were told we were never allowed to wear our coats into a client. We had to stand outside no matter what the weather, take off our jacket, very carefully fold it over our arms and no bags on shoulders because that would pull your... And and because what you've just described there through the Japanese eye and now your eye is any um, uh, anything out of place says something about you. So it's that kind of unharried. So that's why you need to show up like 20 minutes early for any meeting so that you can prepare yourself and make sure that everything's in place because every small detail will be noticed and picked up on. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And it's it's a beautiful thing, actually, when you put it like that. Of course, for me, like if I'm legging it through town in rainy season <laughs> and then I have to kind of make myself presentable outside the clients before I even walk through the door and I'm not allowed to put my heavy bag with my computer in it over my shoulder. I have to hold it like in my hand like that and my coat over the other side. It's just annoying. But now I see the, the beauty and the respect inherent in that system. Does this make sense, Chuck? It makes perfect sense. It makes uh -huh. perfect sense. And I think one of the things that that's really that I've noticed about successful people mm -hmm. in general is that this is one of the ways that I think, you know, being involved within Japanese culture really if you take it seriously, it really, really breeds you for success outside of Japan as well. Isn't I've noticed that with very, very successful people, they're oftentimes very detail oriented. Like they notice little things and they notice details. Mm -hmm. Partially because oftentimes, you know, successful people, they just get pitched at all the time. <laughs> so, you know, if you have a hundred people asking you for something, who are you going to choose? You're going to choose the guy that nails everything, not the guy that nails like some of it, but not the guy that nails 70% of it, you're going to choose the person that nails everything, mm. right? Um, or, you know, if you're getting pitched at all the time, you know, some of those people are going to represent risk or, or you know, could potentially be dangerous. So you have to keep your eye out for red flags. Mm. You know, like what's a red flag that this person is going to mess up or what's a red flag that this person doesn't actually know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And your presentation is a big part of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like yeah. it's a big part of it. So. so that really, I think this is a nice pivot point to come into kind of what 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 you're doing. Like, how did you get to, this is such a, I mean, this is a really sexy profile, right? You've been a bodyguard and a celebrity bodyguard and a Taekwondo champion. And it's a really kind of interesting profile. So I'd love to kind of get into this, the stunt school bodyguard. Like, tell us about how all these things came about and where you're at now. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this stuff, it was just, I would see, I would, an opportunity would just kind of fall into my lap for, mm -hmm. for, you know, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And then I see an opportunity and then I just run with it and just kind of figure it out mm -hmm. going, you know? So, um, bodyguarding was very much that way. Uh, mm -hmm. because the way that it started is that when I first got to Japan, I was, I was just at, I was at a party. And then I, I met, uh, you know, a Japanese guy who went on to become one of my best friends for a very, very long time. And then he said, you know, you look really strong. What do you do? And I said, oh, I'm a Taekwondo guy. And then he said, oh, I'm a Taekwondo guy too. And then he said, are you a champion? And I said, yeah. And then he said, oh, I'm a champion too. We should go fight. So I was like, okay, let's go fight. So then we just went to go fight because that's what, at least with young martial artists, that's what you do. You make a friend and then you fight them to see how good they can fight. Right? Nice. And then we went and then we fought and he's like, you're really good and you look really strong. Um, I work as a bodyguard, you should do it with me because it'd be nice to have a native English speaker. And this was 20 years ago when there were far less native English speakers. Sure. So, and he said, you're, you know, you're physically strong, you're physically large, you speak English, I think you should be good, you should do this. And I was like, all right, well, I've never done that before. So then I just had to go through the whole training course completely in Japanese, when I didn't even speak Japanese yet, <laughs> which was just rough, you know, but then I just got into it and then uh, you know, you just do your best every time and you make some mistakes, but hopefully they're not big enough mistakes that they cost you your job. And then you think, okay, well, this was a mistake. Let me not do that again. Then you make another mistake the next time. You're like, well, let me not do that again. And you just keep doing that until you just don't make any more mistakes. Right. 
So, and that was how that kind of panned out. And then it was the same thing with getting into doing stunts is basically at the time I was already doing bodyguarding, but it was sporadic. So I just wasn't quite making enough. So a friend was like, all right, well, you know, you're, you're pretty muscular. So maybe you could try modeling. And I was like, all right, well, I've never done that before. What do I do? And they said, oh, here's the number of an agency. So then I walked into the agency, which at the time was IMO. And then I said, all right, um, yeah, I, I, I want to do this modeling thing. What do I do? And they're like, well, what are you good at? And I was like, well, I'm, I'm pretty good at martial arts. And they said, oh, well, we're casting for a movie and we need martial arts guys. Can, do you have any pictures? And I said, no. And then said, okay, well, let's go outside and take some. So then I ran outside, took my shirt off and like did, you know, got one good picture of a flying kick. There was like a wedding going on in the background or something, right? And I'm just like, ah, doing this flying kick in front of this wedding. <laughs> one good photo. And then they sent it in to, uh, the, to the casting agency. They had closed casting an hour ago or an hour before, but they saw the picture and they're like, man, why not? He's good cinnamon. So then they sent me in and then I auditioned and I don't think I did a fantastic job, but again, I did just enough to get in. Mm -hmm. And then I got into the film and then all of a sudden I'm doing action movies. So then I went to somebody and I'm like, this action movie stuff, cool. How do I keep doing this? And then they said, go and talk to that guy. And then that guy was in, it was an up and coming Japanese action director. So then I said, you know, what, what do I do? And he said, okay, well, why don't you just come and train with me and my guys? And I said, okay. So then I just went and I just started training with his guys. Again, I didn't speak any Japanese and I certainly didn't do a perfect job, but I did just good enough that I got my first role in an action film a year or two later. And then from there, you just build on it and build on it and build on it. So, I mean, a lot of this process was just a matter of seeing an opportunity, grabbing it, running, running with it, and then figuring out, figuring out just enough to keep going forward, you know, despite making mistakes here and there and, and everything else. Cause you know, if, if uh, I could add up all the mistakes that I've ever made in my life and all of these different journeys. <laughs> oh God, right? Like I don't, yeah. Well, it's obviously it's 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 inherent in taking this many steps forward. You just seem incredibly positive. But I have a a good coaching question, which is how do you manage your ego around all these mistakes and this? You're like, yes, I will do that. And this is highly skilled work as well. Not only that, but your body's on 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 display too. It's it, there's no um, there's no hiding or mistaking uh, uh, or or disguising when a mistake is happening. How do you manage your ego around this? Chuck? How do, how do you mean by, by manage, manage your ego? Ah, okay. So what, what I mean is, oh, this is a really good question, actually. What I mean is how do you stop yourself from being completely engulfed in shame or like um, being defensive or, um, you know, you say like, you're just laughing. I've made so many mistakes. You say yes. And then you have to like learn, even though you don't speak Japanese, you just kind of go in. It's like, it's difficult. It's hard. So it seems like it's not even a question for you, actually. I know that martial arts helps people to manage their egos quite a lot. I think so anyway. Yeah. Um, but that, that voice that says you're kind of, oh, you're not good enough or, oh, I've got to prove myself or but what I'm hearing from you is that you just keep taking the next step and the next step and the next step, making mistakes, allowing people to adjust you and course correct for you. Uh, this is what I'm hearing anyway. Do you have an answer? If not, it seems to be inherent in you now. So maybe it's just become so natural. I think one, a big part of that 
was ring fighting. Because uh-huh. when you fight in the ring, you just get punched in the face, you know, or kicked in the stomach a lot. Mm-hmm. And what you realize is that it doesn't kill you. You know uh-huh. what I mean? Like I remember I the the scariest fight or one of the scariest fights I, I ever did was a kickboxing match. And I was fighting this guy and he had shoulders that looked like grapefruits. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like just these ginormous shoulders, like these huge deltoids, right? And like uh he hit like he punched me in the face so hard at one point. Cause at the time I didn't I didn't even know how to kickbox very well, right? Because yeah. I mean I'm a Taekwondo guy. Taekwondo guys are mainly good at using their legs. You know, we don't really punch to the face. So at least the style of Taekwondo that I'm from. So getting punched to the face was something that was very new for me. And he hit me so hard and it hurt a lot. But the first thing, the first thought that I had after he hit me was one, oh my God, that hurts so much. And then two, okay, I'm still here. What's thought number three? It did knock me out. I'm still here. I'm still on my feet. I'm still cognizant. Let me not get hit again. <laughs> right. So, and just that, that having that thought that you realize, okay, this mistake is not going to kill me. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it just, it hurts and that sucks, but whatever, it's just not going to kill me. Right. And it's such a small realization, but it's such a huge realization at the same time because people get so worried, like, oh my God, you know, what if this happens? And what if that happens? And what if that happens? And if it happens, it just happens. You know, and the question is, is like, all right, well, what are you going to do? You know, like if it happens, just, just, just do something, yeah. you know? And I know there's, there's been, um, there was another fight I had where I was, I was, I was fighting for, it was the gold medal match for a tournament called the U S gold cup. And then, you know, right at the beginning of the match, I, I, I went to throw a high kick and the other guy counter kicked and he hit me while my, one of my legs was up in the air. So my hamstrings were extended. So he kicked me in the hamstring when it was already extended. You're, you're all this stuff. It's all one system, right? Take out one leg. Basically you're taking out both legs. And that was right at the beginning of the match, you know, and which is just your worst nightmare. But at the same time, I just had to figure it out. I just didn't have a choice because I was in the ring with him. And if I didn't do something, he was just going to beat me up, you know? So he took out both my legs. And then I was just, I was trying to just kind of avoid getting hit. I saw one opening, just one opening. And when, when he was attacking me and it was painful as hell, but I just wound up and I kicked him as hard as I could that one time. And it hurt because my legs were already injured. But I got him and I got him really solid and I got one point. And then the rest of the match I spent running because <laughs> I couldn't do anything else because I was in so much pain. But I won with that one point, you know, and, and sometimes that's what it takes. You just you even when you're getting hammered, you just I, th- I think one of the things about one of the things that I teach little kids when I'm teaching them how to fight is how to keep your eyes open when even when you're getting hit, mm. you're getting punched really hard the natural inclination is to close your eyes. And as soon as you close your eyes, you can't see what's happening. So one of the things that I deal with them and as, as I, I stand them up and I say, okay, put your guard up. I'm going to hit you. And even when I'm hitting you, I don't want you to close your eyes. Keep your eyes on me. Keep your eyes on me. And I'll just sit and I don't, I don't hit them hard because they're little kids, but I'll just uh, uh, hit them quickly with the target and just make them not blink. So, and part of that 
it isn't even so much about ring fighting. It's about knowing how to not, not shrink and not blink when you're getting hit in life, you know, and just being like, all right, you know, how do I take this hit? And then just keep my eyes open and keep moving forward and just let it roll off of you. Right. This is amazing, Chuck. This is like, oh my God, I feel like I'm just getting an amazing download. I feel like I'm in the matrix and you're Morpheus. <laughs> <laughs> that that image came to me before as well. Like, you, you, have you seen the matrix? Yeah, of course. I love of course it. you have. You probably know all the fight scenes off by heart. I do. But um, <laughs> um, when all the guns come in, like yeah. that, um, that's, there's something you said earlier just reminded me of that. It's like where you get these like mad downloads of things where suddenly things fall into place. It's like when you're telling me these stories, I mean, you're a real sage with these stories. Um, <clears throat> you may not know it, but you're like putting it all together for me now. Uh, it's like, I feel like it's when all the guns come in <laughs> and suddenly I'm getting a download. But um, um, first of all, I'm a systems coach. So that's what my training is. So when you say it's all one system and when your leg gets taken out, then the other leg's useless and blah, blah, blah. Like that, that really like, again, that was a light bulb moment for me. Like, yeah, of course we can relate that to our bodies. It's all one system, but also we're all one system. So if one thing gets taken out, then, you know, everything is impacted by that. And then this is new to me that you have to keep your eyes open even when you're getting hit. Yeah. And I just love this, Chuck. I mean, this is a metaphor that I'm going to take into my coaching practice. Thank you, Sensei. Is um, that even when you're in the in the shit, excuse me, mm -hmm. even when you're in the depths of something really difficult, you cannot take the your eye off the ball of other things that are happening around you. So even when things are really, really difficult, you still need to pay your taxes because yeah. otherwise it's going to impact you down the road. You, you know, that that's kind of the simplest way I can say this. And for myself as well, it's like, even when I, you know, I always do five and 10 year plans. They're not really plans. They're just containers into which I put my imagination. Yeah. So I can't take, even when I'm really in the midst of a mad marketing phase or like a really, really busy, intense phase of delivery or coaching, I still need to keep my eye on the, you know, the house that I want to build in the future or... Yeah you know, the way that I want me and my husband to retire together that we've agreed upon, you know, where we've designed our alliance around that. So whatever, I, if you stay too much, this is what it means to me. It's just absolutely beautiful metaphor, but also not metaphorically. It's fascinating to hear that that's what you need to do, Chuck. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think fighting, it's one of the things that I love about fighting is yeah. that it's, it's everything about it is analogous to life. Yeah. You know, everything about it, you know, even like when you look at one of the things about when you do ring fighting is you develop a really keen understanding of people, because basically when you walk into a ring, you're walking into a ring with somebody that you don't know. And you have about 30 seconds to figure this person out and to think, OK, what tools do they have? What tools do I have? How do I have the tools that they have? And you're doing this all at a million miles per hour, you know, in real time, because, you know, even a long match is like three minutes. So you've got 30 seconds to look at this person and then completely figure them out. You know, and some, sometimes you don't figure them out until the end of the match, you know, and sometimes you figure them out early, but you, you just look at, you know, you look at how they, at how people walk and you look at what they do with their eyes. And like you, 
and you, you notice patterns with people. You know, like for example, one of the things about ring fighting is that the quiet guys are always the most vicious. You know what I mean? Like when you have like the guys that are loud and brash and they have like the really cool entry dance, like those aren't the guys you have to worry about. The guy that quietly walks into the ring with that just, you know, he's just there purely to fight. Like those are the guys you have to worry about, you know, and, and you, you just little things like that. And I think that comes to uh, that's analogous to, to, you know, business as well and, and things, right? You have these salespeople that are just all show, you know, whereas you look at other people and they're real quiet and real understated. And you think, okay, this guy is a monster. This guy's a beast, right? Because they're just, they're quiet, they're understated and they have nothing to prove, right? Oh my God, Chuck, I, this, I, I feel, I'm feeling a little bit like personally attacked here because I've never been quiet and understated. <laughs> But that's just my personality. <laughs> no, but you know what? But it, there's a difference. Just kidding. There's a difference between being outgoing uh -huh. and being a braggart. Ah, uh, okay. Like, like I have never, ever, ever seen you as a braggart, right? Oh, thank you. I really. You know what I mean? That. Like, there, there's people that like, they just all they talk about is like themselves, 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 and how great they are, and they got their chest puffed out all the time. You know, obviously, there's being outgoing is a great thing. Yeah. You no, know, but it's people that spend all their time talking about how good they are usually aren't all that good at it. Interesting. I have a very practical question to ask you here, which is, have you ever had any injuries and how did you recover from them? Oh yeah. Tons of them. Yeah. Have you ever had any serious ones? I've got yeah. I, quite recently. No. Yeah. I mean, thus far I've, I blew out my left knee, torn the rotator cuff in my right shoulder, um, had a herniated disc in my back. I had the Epstein-Barr virus, which was the worst thing ever, oh. ever. It's horrible. <laughs> so yeah, I've had tons of injuries, you know, but mm -hmm. it's just, but what it came down to was looking at the problem systematically and then attacking the problem systematically, you know? So um, for example, you know, with the Epstein-Barr virus, when I got that, I mean, have you ever heard of it or? Yeah. I've heard of it. I've never had it. It is the most horrible thing ever, if you have it. But um, basically, I went to the doctor and he's like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a virus. There's nothing we can do. So, mm -hmm. you know, antibiotics and whatnot is for bacteria. There's a virus. It's not going to help. All you have to do is let it run its course. And then I looked it up online and, then, and it was six months to never for recovery. And I was like, okay, that doesn't work for me. I'm not feeling six months and never. So I thought, okay, what are all of the different symptoms that are involved in this? And then, um, and then basically I just went through and just attacked each symptom one by one, you know, like for example, one of the problems I was having was, was, uh, a lot of like kidney problems, right. You know, and when you have kidney problems, you know, you, you, it's, it's really, really good. One thing that are really good for your kidneys is cranberry juice. Mm -hmm. I just started drinking tons of cranberry juice because it's really good for your kidneys. Problem with that is that another symptom of the virus is that I also had these like huge cold sores in my mouth, right? So, you know, drinking juice, which is acidic, it burned like crazy, right? So then I thought, okay, well, which is the bigger problem? The cold sores or the kidneys? Kidneys is a bigger problem. I'll deal with that. And then I'll go back to the cold sores later, right? So, and you know, I just went symptom by symptom thinking, okay, what can I do 
by myself to treat each of these symptoms one by one. And I would just get rid of it one by one. Mm. Um, and when I herniated the disc in my back, it was the same thing. It's like, okay, I've done something really, really bad to my back. Now, what are all of the potential things in my space that are aggravating my back? Mm. Now, I thought, okay, let's look at the desk, I, my desk chair. Let's look at the, the, the car seat. Okay, what about my mattress? And I just went one by one. And then just, just uh, you know, I got a, uh, a, new, a new back pad for my car. That like a memory back pad for my car so that the car seat would be better for my back. And then I changed out my desk chair. So that I got a desk chair, um, you know, that had neck support and everything else. And then I looked at the mattress and I'm like, okay, well, you know, let's get a memory foam mattress. And then after that, then I started thinking, okay, well, I'm spending a lot of time Let's, let's look at how I handle my day and everything that I'm doing within my day. Okay. What can I do to minimize my movement and to have to stop carrying things? Because part of the problem is I was spending so much time carrying really heavy things. That was one of the things that, that contributed to the hernia, right? So I thought, okay, how can I rework my day to minimize the fact, to minimize how much I'm carrying? And then I just redid everything to minimize how much I'm carrying. And then, I, okay, next step, you know, how do I minimize movement? You know, so then from there, it was like, okay, well, let's not, when I'm teaching English or whatever, let's, let's just switch to just doing online. So then I don't have to spend as much time riding crowded trains or whatever. And it was just a matter of, of just attacking every problem one by one, bit by bit, bit by bit. And one thing that I had heard from a CEO that I absolutely loved, um, I forgot the, the name of the guy, but he's a Jap. He's he's uh, he's a foreign guy, but he owns a company here. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he said is that basically, when you run a business, there's always going to be tons and tons of fires to put out. Yep, constantly putting out fires. And basically, the the best thing you can do is you just let the little fires burn to focus on the big fires. And then if that little fire becomes a big fire, then you focus on that. But if it's a little fire, you just let it burn. So you can focus on putting out the big fires first. Then if you get all the big fires out, then you go back and then you take out the little fires. You know, and that was basically what I was doing with, with the recovery. And then, and then it was the same with my knee and the same with my shoulders. I said, all right, well, at this point, what's the first step? Step one is going to be figuring out how exactly it's injured. Okay, step two, what are going to, what's, what does rehab entail? You know, what do we have to do for rehab? How long is rehab supposed to take? Step three, am I resting enough? Because if you want to heal, you have to spend a lot of time resting. You know, uh, step four, am I giving my, myself enough nutrition? You know, because nutrition is also a huge part of healing. Mm -hmm. You know, so then I just went through everything and just looked at it. Okay, what is, the, what is going to be my system for healing? Mm -hmm. And then I just created everything and just laid it all out and then just went, you know, short-term goal, short-term goal, short-term goal, knock out one problem, knock out another problem, knock out another problem until things are fine. And as a function of that, I've made a 100%, pretty much a 100% recovery from everything. Wow. I just love this. Go symptom by symptom. And what's your system for healing? And this, again, this just relates so beautifully back to coaching. Like we say, like remove all our tolerations. What are you tolerating? So remove them and improve things. And we do upgrades, not, not so you like buying new smelly candles and stuff like that, but like, what can you upgrade that's going to improve your life? What can you upgrade that's, I've got a standing desk that goes up and down. 
so that when I, you know, inevitably feel really, uh, uh, you know, so I can put it up and down, but also I, I got the expensive one that's got a button on it. Yeah. So that I don't have to crank it or I don't have to think about it. I can just hit the button. You know, there's so many things. It's like decluttering. You know, that's a really big yeah. thing. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Marie Kondo and things like yeah. that. But like it, it, all these different things all contribute to a system's um, uh, effect, efficacy, efficiency, how easy things are. This is just solid gold, Chuck. So I now want to kind of transition into kind of landing this conversation. So why don't, tell us about Quiet Flame and what you're doing now and what the future holds for you, Chuck. Okay. So with Quiet Flame, it started off purely as a Taekwondo school, largely because I was doing all these things in action and stunts and bodyguarding, but I wasn't doing Taekwondo anymore. And I thought, you know what? I spent 20 years of my life getting very, very, very good at this. And I'm not teaching it to anybody, which means that if I just, you know, I'm going to reach a stage in life where it's going to be difficult to move because of my age. So let me transfer these skills to somebody else while I'm still young and I can still move. Let me give this to someone, you know, while I am still capable of moving well. So then I started teaching Taekwondo. And then the reason that I wanted to call it Quiet Flame is because I think if you you know, if you look at a fire, a fire is an amazing thing. You know, a fire can, can, you know, it cooks your food, you know, it warms and you're cold, can become the source of a community. If you look at like bonfires and things, the way people gather and then, you know, fires can create these beautiful things. But if fires become too strong, they can burn out all their own resources and they can hurt people, right? So I thought, you know, what, I think everyone needs in life is to find their own quiet flame and to find their own quiet fire, right? Where you have this balance of, of a burning passion for what you want in life, but not so much that it's burning out the people around you or that it's burning out your own resources. It's, it's, it's just about balance. It's about finding balance. So that's what I called the, the Taekwondo school was the quiet flame dojo or dojo in Korean. And then from there, you know, I was, I had been studying fight choreography for a long, long time. And then the person that I studied fight choreography from ended up passing away, uh, you know, and, and he had a, a, a brain hemorrhage while he was doing jujitsu and he died suddenly. Mm. So then I, you know, he'd imparted all this knowledge of how to teach fight choreography into me so then I thought naturally this is you know partially as as a tribute to him and then partially because taking all of his knowledge and then mixing it what I know because you know I've also studied a lot of western elements of fight choreography too I thought it's time to start teaching fight choreography as well because I've you know I'm you know 10 years into this industry or 15 years in this industry so then quiet flame went from being just a taekwondo school to being taekwondo plus fight choreography and then over time, it just kept growing and growing and it's spreading <clears throat> until what it turned into was an institution for teaching people how to better themselves through understanding physical movement. So, you know, now we have, we have acting classes, we have, you know, weapons classes, we have Taekwondo classes, we have fight choreography classes, we have stunt classes. And basically people study all these different elements of physical movement in the context of 
bettering themselves. You know, I mean, of course, everybody's actors and, and we're, they're learning skills so that I can act better. But a large part of it is like, you know, as you said, upgrading yourself. How do I upgrade? How do I upgrade? How do I develop better skills in this? How do I develop new skills in that? So everybody that, that kind of trains at QF is this, they're studying all these different things and then we're all studying it together and then we're all just learning from each other and then with each other. And then we just create things. So I don't ever, I don't know if you've seen any of the, the quiet flame fight days that um, I post from time to time, but those are just, those are output for every, for everything that we learn. Cause I strongly believe that learning always has to have some output. It can't mm -hmm. exist in a, in a vacuum. You know, you learn a skill and then you have to be able to apply it to something. Yeah. So that's what Quiet Flame does. And now the next stage that we're moving into is we're trying, I'm not going to say trying because we're going to do it, but we're, we're going to produce our first feature film. Wow. Yeah. We've produced, um, I've produced my first short. My first short was really successful. It was called Fist of Absinthe. Um, and it was in samurai action comedy you know, about a guy who drinks absinthe at a bar in Tokyo and then he time slips back to ancient Japan and he's trying <laughs> to defend his sneakers against samurai, right? Amazing. What's the concept? It's on YouTube. It's called Fists of Absinthe if you want to watch hey, it. Right? Fists of Absinthe. Oh my God, that sounds Fists. amazing. I, I'll be watching that straight after this. <laughs> it's just a 20 minute, it's a 20 minute action comedy film. And that was the first serious film that I'd produced. Yeah. But, um, you know, we, it went on to get, uh, become an, an official selection at the Urban Action Showcase in New York. What? Um, got a distribution deal with uh, TBS Digital Distribution for Japan. You know, and, um, and again, that film was one of those things where an opportunity came because I was a YouTuber and I was doing really well as a YouTuber. And then YouTube is like, your channel is doing re really well. Do you want to try and make a movie? And I'm just like, all right, let me try and make a movie. So again, I just saw an opportunity, grabbed it, ran with it, made a lot of mistakes, but did it well enough that the project turned out to be a big success. So now it's like, okay, well, I've done that. Now it's time to move on to doing a feature, which is a thousand times harder because the budget is way, way bigger. The storytelling is way more in depth. Um, and what I would like to do with this, this feature is about sex trafficking. Whoa. So and it's, it's gonna be heavy, but the point of it is that Basically, one of the things that I think is missing from action film, because I love action movies. Yeah. But when you watch action movies, what are you watching? You're watching things blow up and you're seeing robots, but you're not seeing very much story generally, right? Maybe in some, you know, obviously like The Matrix was a beautiful exception of an example, right? Incredible story. Um, but one of the things that I would like to do is to use action cinema as a way to address relevant social issues. You know, because I think, for example, if, you know, I wanted to do a story about sex trafficking, but the problem with sex trafficking is that, for example, some people that make documentaries about it, there's lots of stuff out there on sex trafficking. But, you know, one of the issues is that you kind of have to be interested in the topic to yeah. begin with, to watch it, right? Yeah, that's right, but, Chuck, yeah. But one of the things that that's interesting about action cinema is that if you take this same topic and then you put it in the context of things getting blown up and like crazy cool fight scenes and things like that, 
then you can raise awareness of the subject while people are being really entertained as well, right? right? So that's kind of what I, what I want to do with QF. So, um, yeah, so this story, it's, I'm hoping to produce it next year at the, at the very, very, very latest where um, I've already got my first pitch deck done and, you know, we're in the process of, of writing the feature script and I've already got a lot of really, really interesting people on board that love the idea, that love what we're trying to do. Um, and then if, if this goes well, then the next thing is going to be, I want to do an action film story that also deals with mental health because mental health is a very, very big issue as well. You know, and then from there, basically, I, what I want to do more than anything is to just create these stories that are just dealing with very important social issues that need to be addressed. And then just doing them in a context of, of you know, entertainment. You know, so that it just, they can just reach way, way, way more people. You know, maybe one of, some, for example, somebody watches the film, it's going to be called Eastbound Traffic, the sex trafficking. Right? Wow. So maybe somebody watches Eastbound and then they'd never even thought about sex trafficking before. And then they watch it and they're like, wow, that's crazy. And then the Netflix documentary about sex trafficking comes up and they're like, oh, I heard about this in Eastbound. Mm -hmm. So the seed's been planted, you know, to, to be aware of this issue. So maybe that's one more person that'll actually watch a documentary about it, which would be one more person that actually does something about it, right? So that's kind of the end the end game for Quiet Flame is to take these, these actors that I'm, you know, and these movement artists that I'm training, that we work together as a team, you know, I mean, at, at QF, we're, we're really like family, like we're really quite close, right? And then from there, we just create these projects that are super cool, but are also having a very positive social impact on society. So, Gorgeous. yeah. So this sounds like a great place to kind of wrap up so the first question I have Chuck is knowing that these kinds of projects do take an awful lot of funding is how can we help there do you have a crowdsourcing or are you going for big money uh backers uh, can, can you say that again Sarah yeah sure um how can we help I understand these that making a feature film is a huge money project so I wondered like are you doing crowdsourcing or are you going for big money backers, but, or like, how can we help? Yeah, I, I am absolutely going to go for crowdsourcing as well, among yeah. other things. So I'm not at the point just yet where um, we're going to be doing that because I just, it's one of those things where one of the, one of the things that I've learned about um, succeeding in anything is to really take the time to get yeah. the details. Yep get the details right yeah and the timing is essential and you have to have that so, window and, where it um, kind of it's not trickling you know, in we're we're moving forward with it and it's not quite at the point that i'm ready to yeah because i'm not quite at the point where i'm ready to tell the world about this um just yet but yeah. we will be we will okay be. So well the moment all, all i can ask is just just hold on and just know that it's coming yeah, um, yeah, I'm so into it. And I'd also love to know how I can like literally contribute, not like, you know, literally like yeah. contribute money wise. Yeah. Um, because I just love, I love this con, I love people who make things and I know it takes money, it just takes money, the end. <laughs> 
So there's that. Yeah. And where can we find you, Chuck? Where can people find you? Where's your website? Where's your YouTube channel? Where's 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 your dojo or dojo? You said where is it? Oh, it's um, I'm right at Rapungi Crossing, actually. You're at Rapungi Crossing. Oh wow. Yeah. So it's uh, it's in a gym called Body Plant. That's it's the third. It's you can't see it from the street. No. But it's a, a gym on the third floor of a building right by Rapungi Crossing. But if you just, if you Google Quiet Flame. Yes. Um, you know, my, my other business is called Strong Body Japan. Strong Body Japan, yeah. Um, so, you know, Quiet Flame is on YouTube. Um, it's on Instagram. And then same with Strong Body. So we've also got Facebook pages. And same same with me, I'm, 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 I'm out there. You know, YouTube, yeah. Instagram. At uh, Quiet Flame. Or, uh is instagram and youtube is quiet flame as well and chuck yeah. johnson too yeah the, the names is just it's quiet flame productions yeah and then also uh strong body japan strong body japan okay i'll find all those links and we'll link to them in the show so notes. on youtube it's just strong body japan instagram strong body japan facebook strong body japan. you know and then same with quiet flame productions it's just the, the name the, the handle's the same so. yeah my personal Instagram is is Chuck dot the letter in dot action. I what I I'm I am <laughs> I'm following that. Yeah. Chuck in action. I have to I'm sure people have said this to you before. I have to use every single fiber of my brain to not call you Chuck Norris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just all the way through. I'm like, it's not Chuck Norris, it's not Chuck Norris, it's not yeah. Chuck Norris. Uh, so chuck thank you it's been an absolute delight talking you to, to you today i had like i i know i can trust my instincts and my intuition because it's just my brain goes oh you must connect with this person and ask them to be on because i don't know something inside me just goes oh my god that's so interesting and um it's, you've delivered back way more than I could have imagined. It's just been absolutely amazing. Talking to people who are elite athletes, it's just a different level of, 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 of being in the world, but it relates back to every single thing that we want to do if we want to have not just a successful life, but a, a functioning, interesting and peaceful life, I think. So I really, really, really appreciate you. I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate all the wisdom. I appreciate your diversity as part of the human condition. All these fabulous um, sound bites that you've given me and you've given me so much juice to share with my coaching community and my clients. And the reason I do these, these podcasts is because I kind of don't want to spoon feed coaching to people through the, the podcast. There's loads of people out there who do that way better than me. But what I want to do is I want to give texture to the coaching that I do by telling stories and by relating it all back to people's stories and people's way of being in the world and you know through these stories and everybody has stories I want to tell them and hear them and just listening to the so many different ways to lead a life so Chuck I can't thank you enough for spending the time with me today and just being such an amazing sage an amazing uh just um teacher and sensei I've I've absolutely loved it oh well thank you Sarah thank you it's so welcome really really been my pleasure too and I I one thing I, I want to say before we close out is that it, it's, I really do believe that it's just, it is all about trusting your instincts, oh. you know, because at, at the, at the end of the day, I don't know how, but 
you know, but we get so up in listening to our friends and listening to our families and, and everything else that, you know, sometimes we just, we just forget that. And one of the, like, again, when I'm teaching kids, one of the things that I'll notice is I'll be teaching them something. Like I'll be teaching them how to do like a form or something. And then they'll, there's a lot of times where they'll, when they're not thinking, they'll just do it right. And then they start to think about it and then they make a mistake, you know? And I just tell them like, just trust yourself. You know, this, you put in the time, your body knows it, just trust, your, just trust yourself and just let it be. So I think learning how to just trust yourself and follow your gut and follow your instinct, whether that goes with what you're supposed to be doing or whether that goes with how you deal with people, it's just huge, you know? And I think it's something that, you know, we don't do enough. Well, I'm so thrilled, Chuck, that my instincts and my intuition brought me to you today because it's been an absolute delight. So thank you everybody for listening or watching. And um, this will be released uh, April 5th. And um, thank you so much. Okay. You're very, very welcome. I'm sorry the video didn't work out. That's no, okay. We'll just, it's just going to be quiet flame on the YouTube channel, plus a few guest appearances from me. <laughs> oh, <okay>. That's fine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you for listening, everybody. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this latest legend on the Sarah Furuya Legends podcast. Hop over to sarahfuruya.com where you can find the full complement of uh, Legends interviews and conversations. Also, you can like and subscribe over on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. I absolutely love these interviews and these conversations I have with these people. I don't care about subscribers if I'm absolutely honest. It just helps to get more people over to listen to these fantastic people. I cannot wait for my next interview. I really hope you can get stuck in and find some juice and some delightful little nugget of knowledge or encouragement from these that will help you to create your story and to take your story forward and to weave and dream up and high dream your own story. Buoyed up by the stories of these people, I would call them ordinary, they're not. But these people, these beautiful legends who I've selected to help you on your way and to help me on my way. So please enjoy, share, subscribe. My Facebook page is Sarah Faruya Coaching. My Instagram page is at Sarah Faruya Coaching too. So get into it. Thanks. Bye.